One of the things that uh, during this past week, uh, I had a conversation with a girl, um, and one of the things that about the conversation was she comes from a different faith background. Uh, she would have a very strong faith herself, but not in the God of the Bible. And her, her faith teaches her that Jesus did not die on the cross, uh, that another took his place. And so, I suppose in certain ways, I'm wanting this morning to focus on uh, not only did Jesus die on the cross, but even the very testimony from the Old Testament of the plan of salvation for each and every one of us that God had planned from eternity past what Jesus would come to do. And in Luke chapter 9 and verse 51, it says, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. I was just thinking about deceivers and those who try to deceive or those who try to divert in the Scriptures. And just one story just before we come to the cross itself, because there's so many stories, of course. Jesus himself, Satan trying to divert him from going to the cross. The last place that Satan wanted Jesus was that the Son of God would die for our sins would take the wrath of God, would bear what we should have borne so that we can come to know Christ and come to know that wonderful salvation in Him. And just this morning, just to reflect for a moment or two on that, I'm not going to go deeply into it because time, you could spend long time, but think this morning, for instance, in Matthew chapter 4. And there, Jesus is tempted by Satan. And think of those words of Satan as he, as he says, uh, if you are, if you are. It's a bit like when he was tempting Eve in the garden in Genesis 3. Did God really say? Did God really say that? Did he, did he, really, did he really mean that? Yes, he did. And if you are the Son of God, putting that doubt even into the mind of the Christ after those 40 days without food. And in Mark chapter 8, and if you have a Bible, just follow me this morning. I'm in a, one or two passages here. But in Mark chapter 8, and in verse um, 31, now, Peter has just declared in verses 27 to 30, who do people say that I am? Very important question this morning. You know, that is a, the, one of the most important questions. Who do people, Jesus asked the question. And verse, uh, sorry, 27 of Mark 8, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? And that's a good question for us this morning. Who do you say that Jesus is? If you went to someone from the Jewish background today, or the, the Jewish faith, they'd probably say he was a false Messiah. They're still waiting for the Messiah to come. If you go to the Islamic faith, they will say that he's not the Son of God because the Quran teaches them that, and that he never died on the cross. 
Therefore, there is no hope. There is no salvation in Christ. If you go to the Buddhist or the Hindu, they'll welcome Jesus, many of them, because he becomes one God amongst thousands upon thousands of other gods. Or maybe you go to the atheist or the communist, and they say, there isn't a God. We're just here for a, a short season. We live, we die, and that's it. There's no such thing as this creator God. And so it's very important in our mind's eye today to think about who do people say that I am? And Jesus asked, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him and said, you are the Christ. Peter was answering the question not because he wanted to get the right mark, but because deep down in his heart, he knew who Jesus was, the Son of God. Unfortunately, even at that stage, Peter was still struggling with what Jesus had come to do. And it says, and he charged them to tell no one about him. And then in Mark 8 and 31, and Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man, which we heard about this morning, referring to himself, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. Jesus here declaring what was to happen to him. He was fixed, he was focused on what, he, what lay ahead. And he said this plainly, and it says then, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Now, Peter wasn't Satan, but there was certainly satanic influence here. Satan behind the scenes orchestrating, even to Peter, the one who was probably so close, one of the three that was so close to Jesus, the one who would become the leader of the pack, you could say, after the resurrection, after the ascension. And in verse 33, but turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan, for you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Jesus was fixed and focused on the cross, on the resurrection, on what lay ahead. And if you turn with me uh, this morning uh, to one of those episodes, Matthew's Gospel, uh, Matthew chapter 27. Matthew chapter 27. And, and we find here, uh, basically, uh, Gethsemane has taken place. Jesus, of course, that point in Gethsemane uh, almost uh, wanting to, to, to not walk away, but the, the pressure he was under. Yet not my will, but thine be done. And needing the help almost of the angel to come and to comfort him in his moment, only hours before the cross. And taken from there, of course, and tried before Pilate and Herod. And then in verse 27, we come into this, you know, sometimes the, we almost want to block out the cross because of the pain of it. And the literal, both physical pain and the spiritual pain. And in verse 27, in Matthew 27, it says, Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion before him. 
And they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. And twisting together a crown of thorns. Imagine the crown of thorns he was in. In the Garden of Eden, one of the, one of the, the, the curses was that mankind would, the soil would produce those thorns. And here he is, the creator, taking the very thorns themselves and allowing evil men. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. Here he is, in the midst of however a number. They took up a whole battalion. It may not, it's hard to know how many was there, but clearly many, many Roman soldiers were there. Men who were used to war, men who were used to violence. They even talk about that today, about men coming back from war, even in Ukraine. Their lives will be changed forever with the things they've seen. But these were men who were used to ruling a country through violence, through oppression. In verse 30, and they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe. Now, can you imagine just before this that Jesus has been flogged? They've been using leather pieces, and at the end of those leather pieces is either bone or metal. Many actually died through flogging before they even were crucified, before they could be crucified. And it's almost horrendous to almost think about it this morning, but that what was done to him even before the cross. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe. Now you can imagine the pain in his back, the lacerations, you can imagine if you cut yourself what it's like. Can you imagine what it's like being whipped and beaten where the very bone is possibly even showing through? And they put his clothes on him and they led him away to crucify him. And they went out and they found a man of Cyrene. That's North Africa, probably eastern, modern-day eastern Libya, just west of, 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 of Egypt. Simon by name. And they compelled him to carry his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. But when he tasted it, he would not drink it. This was to nullify the pain. But Christ was going to bear it all for you and me. He wasn't going to go dulled to the cross. And when they had crucified him, actually, Matthew doesn't even go into the gory details of the crucifixion. And the Romans, by the way, crucified thousands. And they invented different ways to crucify people, cruelly. In the most cruel and awful ways. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. I read this morning from Psalm 22, and I haven't time to go back to it. But Psalm 22 has many reference points, and this is one of them. And then they sat down and kept watch over him there. Here's my argument about those who say that another took his place on the cross. 
for a Roman soldier not to crucify him could have meant death for the Roman soldier. They were usually in groups of four. And so possibly four soldiers sitting down, it says they sat down and they kept watch over him there. The task that they had to carry out was they were to finish the job they were told to do, crucify him. How could another take his place? My argument actually this last week or my discussion this last week was the person I was talking to was a mother. I says, tell me this, I says. You've got a number of children. I says, tell me this. Could I bring other children here today and mix them in with your children? And you not know who your child is? She says, of course not. I know my children. Remember a guy one time in Belfast, when I said that to him, he, he actually says to me, he says, my mother used to know when I was three streets away by the way I spoke. It's quite interesting, isn't it? Je Jesus' mother was at the cross. So were the disciples. So were the women, many of them, who had followed him. Those who had eaten with him the night before, many of these people were there. And not only that, but you had this Roman soldiers who had just crucified him. So who was going to take him from the cross and put another there? And over his head they put the charge, verse 37, against him, which read, this is Jesus, the King of the Jews. And they crucified with him, uh, sorry, then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And now we come to this part of the passage here from 38 on down to 44. Again, uh, the desire of Satan to remove him from the cross. Yet Jesus' ultimate desire to remain on the cross. And those who passed by were uh, by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, here we go with this word, if, if, if. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. Jesus was crucified outside the city probably. The city was extremely busy. This was the Passover. You've got to remember the thousands who would be there, they've traveled, even Simon had traveled from North Africa. Many others would have traveled from right around the, the Mediterranean basin. And as they passed by, not all had just gone to see them been crucified. Some were passing by and maybe going into Jerusalem. And even they started to uh, wag their heads. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests, the religious elite, with the scribes, the elders mocked him, saying, he saved others, he cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. What a pack of lies. Liars. They wouldn't have believed in him if he had come down from the cross. But certainly Satan was working his means to try. And Jesus' moment of, of weakness he trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. 
Many actually would say in the Bible, where does Jesus say he's the Son of God? There's many places he says it. But even the very chief priests say it. The ones who had him crucified. The reason they had him crucified. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. wonder about us today as we think of some of these thoughts. What does Jesus mean to us? What does Christ mean to us today? You know, we, we, we live this way once. We'll never have this service ever over again. We'll never have another this Sunday morning ever again. And we're faced with the crucifixion of Christ. And Jesus says to us to take up our cross, it says, and follow him. Now, that wasn't a literal cross. That doesn't, that's not for you and I to be crucified that way. But to die unto self and to live unto Christ. I don't know what that means in your life. I know what it means in my own life. And I know the obstacles to that in my own life. The desires that we have for the comforts of this world the desires to do the things that we want to do. But what does God want us to do? What is Christ asking you to do today? And if you're here this morning or you're listening to this or whatever, and you don't know Jesus, well, I sat like you in Brookside for 24 years, and I didn't know Jesus. Maybe God has been speaking to you afresh. Maybe you're recognizing, maybe, the, maybe you were taught in Sunday school something or church or some of the organizations or whatever it was, maybe Christian home you've come from. I don't know where you're from today. But maybe God is speaking to you afresh. He spoke to the robbers afresh. For it says here, they both reviled him. But within a matter of a very short time, one of them said, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise. You can know that now. You can know forgiveness of sins now. It was in that moment that the thief, the robber, the insurrectionist, whatever you want to call him, came to Christ. He was certainly in his deepest need. He was a dying man, the robber on a cross. But he come to behold who Jesus was. This was none other than the Son of God who was dying beside him. And verse 45 says, Now from the sixth hour, which was twelve noon, there was darkness over the land until the ninth hour, which was 3 p.m., and about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli. And that's where they maybe thought that he was referring to Elijah. But Eli, Eli, lemma sabbatani. That is my God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? I remember a Jehovah's Witness coming to me one time and saying to me, why did Jesus say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? They had no understanding of the Trinity. No understanding of who Jesus is. To them, he was just another ordinary man. 
maybe a good man, maybe a prophet, I don't know what, but he wasn't the son of God. But here we come to the core of the father and the son and the separation. And Jesus in those three hours bearing our sin, bearing the wrath of God that we deserved. And some of the bystanders, verse 47, hearing this said, this, is, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, put it in a reed and gave it him to drink. But others said, wait, let us see where Elijah will come to save him. And in this moment then we find, and in John's gospel the words are, it is finished. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Those are tremendous words. It is finished. Complete. All that he had come to do, he had borne the wrath. He had taken our place. The righteous dying for the unrighteous. The sinless dying for the sinner. And then this amazement here, just in these verses, just as we come towards a close here, from 51 to 54, and it says, And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. It was 3 p.m. in the afternoon. The temple sacrifice was being prepared in Jerusalem while Jesus was being crucified. Can you imagine the priests at the temple as they saw this amazing thick, thick curtain that separated them from the Holy of Holies, been torn from top to bottom. The way was open. The way for us to access to God through the death of Christ. And the earth shook and the rocks were split. You can imagine being in Jerusalem and hearing this, the darkness for three hours, complete darkness, the earthquake, the rocks splitting, the tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. Coming out of their tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. What a time. And the proof, the darkness, the earthquake, even before the resurrection, and when the centurion, the one in charge of the, the crucifixion, when the centurion and those who were with him kept keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, truly, this was the Son of Man. Peter describes in 1 Peter 2, verses 22 to 25, summarizes this. First Peter 2 and 22, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth, in the reference to Jesus. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return, and when he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. If you ask me what we're to do, we're to die to sin. Sanctification, God changing us day by day. 
that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, the righteousness of God. God's changing us, transforming us. For those of us who know Christ, are you been changed? Is your life any different? Is my life any different today than it was a year ago? Is there a continual longing in my heart to know Christ, to walk with Jesus, to talk with Jesus, to spend time with Jesus? Jesus' face, it talks about in the, the AV, I think, uh, the, NIV, uh, the AV uh, authorized version, his face was like a flint. That's a, that's a, a stone in the, the negative desert, you know, like a flint, something hard, straight, unchangeable, like a flint heading towards Jerusalem to the cross. Are we fixed and focused on our Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem? Or is our minds distracted by this world? Is there something distracting you at the minute? Is there something coming into your life that's keeping you from being focused? By his wounds you have been healed. Reference probably to Isaiah 53. For you were straying like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. In closing this morning, we're going to come in a wee moment to think of this hymn. The power of the cross. 1 Corinthians 1 and 18 says these words, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. How true those words are. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. May we know that power of God as we live out our lives, as you work, as you do whatever in life, as you play sport, as whatever life brings before you, may you know that power of God living deeply within us and our eyes fixed and focused on Christ and on the new Jerusalem that he has prepared for us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the word this morning to us. And we thank you for the cross. The cross of Christ. That you bore our sin upon the tree. You who became cursed. But we thank you also for the resurrection. That you did not remain in the tomb. But up from the grave you arose, triumphant over your foes. And today you're seated in glory. And one day we who know you, because of what you tell us in your word, can know that we too can be with you for all eternity. Help us to think of these things. In Jesus' name we pray.